Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is November 7th of 2013, and tonight our guest is Dr. Anna Lemke. Um, she is an MD. She is with the, she is a Stanford alcohol scholar. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, a harm reduction guide to alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Work.org slash book. Our guest, Dr. Anna Lemke, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Anna? I'm good. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on the show. I saw that you had written a, a study about moderation management, and then I was also just, you know, surfing the web a little bit before the show. I saw you had an article in The Fix about the DSM-5, so we're going to talk a little bit about both of those topics. Um, let's talk about the DSM-5 first. Um, you thought there were some improvements over the DSM-4. Uh, tell us about that. Well, the main difference between the DSM-5 criteria for diagnosing a substance use disorder and that of DSM-5 was that they eliminated the categorical definitions of abuse and dependence. So it used to be either you had addiction or you didn't, <clears throat> kind of like being pregnant, and either you had abuse or you had dependence, abuse generally being considered a less severe form than dependence. And what they did in the DSM-5, they said, let's get rid of abuse, because we don't like that word. It sounds like child abuse. And they said, let's get rid of dependence, because really anybody can be physiologically dependent on addictive substance without having the, an addictive disorder. And what they replaced it with was just a very simple nomenclature of a substance use disorder. So if you smoke cigarettes, you have a nicotine use disorder. If you drink alcohol, you have an alcohol use disorder. If you use crank, you have a methamphetamine use disorder. <clears throat> and that was kind of nice because they also gave anchor points for mild, moderate, and severe, which made it possible to kind of put people on a spectrum. Because right now, there is really this idea that um, substance use disorders are spectrum disorders, just like depression is a spectrum disorder. People have mild, moderate, and severe depression. They don't just have depression. And I think a lot of clinicians, including myself, feel like that's a much uh, more accurate uh, way to describe the differences in patients that we encounter. Um, you know, I'll see a, someone who I think is an alcoholic, but not a severe alcoholic, and it's nice to be able to make those distinctions. So I thought that was a good improvement. Well, I agree that there's a good thing that uh, there there is... I mean, we see this all the time when we're dealing with support groups or whatever. There is a level of severity that we see. Some people are more severe than others. What do you think of the idea that it's progressive, that uh, that a moderate uh, use disorder always progresses into a severe one? Yeah, I don't buy into that, um, and I don't think that the evidence supports that. I think that there's incredible inter-individual variability. So for some people, a moderate use disorder um, may indeed progress in, in, in a nice article um, by Rich Zeitz. He estimates that about one-third of folks with a mild use disorder are at risk to progress to a more severe uh, use disorder. But, you know, I think the evidence supports um, 
<clears throat> that there isn't that kind of inevitability and that it's hard to predict and that, you know, the individuals vary. Some will progress and some will not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we start looking at uh, epidemiological data like NISARC and some of those studies, we see, you know, uh, you know, we see the drug and alcohol problems kind of peaking, you know, around the early 20s or so. And when people get older, they uh, tend to move away. The, you know, there's a tendency to have spontaneous remission of addiction. Yeah, I agree. There's this whole phenomenon of natural recovery, which um, had previously been more controversial than it is now. I think it's really gaining ground and becoming much more accepted. The work of Sobel and Sobel really lays out nicely that, um, you know, about 70% of folks who recover from an alcohol use disorder do so without any professional intervention at all. And um, some 30% of those folks actually return to moderate drinking. So I think there's a lot of variety, um, and uh, you know there is really and truly this phenomenon of, of natural recovery. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, Gene Heyman uh, in Boston just <clears throat> had a paper out very recently where he's talking about uh, uh, spontaneous remission across uh, addictive disorders, including illicit drugs, and found that to be the norm. Uh-huh, interesting. I, how do you spell the last name of the person? Uh, Heyman, H-E-Y-M-A-N. Okay, I'll, I'll look it up. I didn't see that. Yeah, and I think what's really um, underemphasized in so much of the discussion, as well as the research in addiction nowadays, is the importance of ecology or context. Um, you know, there's a, a very famous study looking at Vietnam War veterans mm-hmm. who are heroin addicts when they're in Vietnam, and most of them, when they came back, kind of stopped. Um, so I do think that, you know, we don't pay enough attention to the ways in which um, people really have their own unique pathway and that it's not predetermined. Um, and I do think that there there is an under-recognition of, of how much um, environment and context matters, at what stage in a person's life they are, things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in some ways, calling it a disease is very problematic to me. Uh, particularly when you start looking at people who have had what they call spontaneous remission and you ask them what happened and, you know, invariably they have the same answer. I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, when you have cancer, you can't say, I decided not to have cancer anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it very much involves volition, um, you know, far more than, uh, say, other mental disorders. Um, there's a very strong volitional component involved with uh, addictive disorders. Well, um, I guess my feeling on that is that the the disease concept is practically useful. That is to say, it's useful from a practical point of view uh, for healthcare providers. And the reason I believe that to be true is because people with severe, heavy substance use. Um, will present in a medical setting with medical problems related to their substance use. And what happens if we don't have providers conceptualize uh, substance use as a disease is that they treat all of the medical conditions that are downstream effects of the substance use problem and never acknowledge the substance use problem. So even if from a philosophical point of view um, one could make a good argument like you just did, 
that addiction is not a disease, I really do think from a practical point of view, it's useful for providers to conceptualize it as, an, as a disease so that they pay attention to it and so that they get their patients uh, who have substance use problems to kind of look at it as a problem that needs changing and they, they put efforts toward that. And I guess, too, I, I, I do, you know, obviously there's, there's uh, quite a, a robust evidence base showing genetic vulnerability um, mm -hmm. for substance use problems. And so that, that's what a lot of people invoke when they try to argue that um, addiction is a disease. They say, you know, the shock it's work that 50% of alcoholics go on to be alcoholics, that alcoholics raised um, with a biological relative who's an alcoholic, or even raised outside of the alcoholic home have four times the risk of becoming alcoholics themselves. Um, so I do think there's kind of this nature-nurture vulnerability diathesis. I do think there are some individuals that are vulnerable to problems of addiction and that those individuals may indeed, you know, after years of heavy use, have honest-to-goodness irreversible brain changes that one could then characterize as a disease. So I, I'm sort of on both sides of that fence. I think in, invoking the disease analogy, as I said, is, is really, I think, useful um, in the contemporary healthcare system, although I totally get like the sort of philosophical and logical arguments against that. Well, you know, I the one thing that's problem with the problem, problematic with the healthcare system, you know, if you don't say it's a disease, then how are you going to charge the insurance companies money? How are you going to get any money to do anything? Right. So that's, uh, you know, which to me, that, that, that doesn't really justify calling it a disease, although I understand that there, there is that motivation. Um, you know, but on the other hand, it's very problematic for some people who, you know, when, they, when they're told they have a disease that they don't have any control over, it's like, I can't help it. And then they stop making the effort to make changes. And I think it can be very negative programming for a person to tell them you, you have a disease, you can't help yourself, or to use the more classical AA approach to say that you're powerless. I mean, I've talked to people many times about my own experience. Um, when I started attending AA meetings, I was abstinent from alcohol. By the time I finished and left, I was drinking a liter of whiskey per day. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happened when people kept telling me alcohol was powerful and I was wow. powerless. Mm -hmm. Interesting. <laughs> well, again, I think, I think conceptualizing addiction as disease can work positively for some individuals and negatively for others. Obviously, for you, it was really negative. For you, this idea that you were going to be overpowered by, you know, your biological destiny was not productive. Um, but I do think for other people, it can be um, destigmatizing for them in a way that's useful. So there's so much shame around addiction that for some people to be able to say, you know, I have a disease, it helps them then begin on the journey of recovery because it's almost like um, kind of getting to start over again. And again, I've seen in my patients, I've seen it work both ways. I've had patients who have told a similar story to the one that you told, and I've had patients for whom it was obvious that this idea, this disease concept was helpful. So the important message there is it's not one size fits all. 
you know, and it's it's important that that we not be do too dogmatic or rigid when we're trying to help folks with these various uh, kinds of addictions. Well, I have no argument with people who have made successful changes. You know, um, I've done, I've worked a lot in needle exchange on and off, so I work side by side with a lot of NA members when I do that because you know a lot of people that volunteer in needle exchange or work there for paying you know salary, they they went through traditional recovery and that's how they quit using. And of course, we work, also work side by side by active with active users who are also helping us distribute uh, clean needles. So, you know, I don't have, you know, it's it's not my purpose to uh, throw cold water on somebody's parade, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, you know, I want to respect people's right to make their own changes, uh, you know, and respect what works for other people. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I, I think it's good to come, you know, informed with all the pros and cons of the various tradition. And then, yeah, realize that what works for one person is, is not going to work for another person. Um, <clears throat> certainly, you don't want to get hit over the head as someone who's trying to change their behavior with just one, one way of solving the problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which, interestingly, uh, you know, when I was seeking help and treatment for, uh, for uh, my alcohol use so 10 years ago in uh, Minnesota, in particular, where I was living, that was definitely the case of getting hit over the head with uh, one solution only over and over again. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, we still haven't really got away from that. Um, I think that the providers have started to move away from that a little bit. I see a lot more enlightenment among addiction therapists now than I did 10 years ago. But if, you know, if you look at the media, oh, he's an alcoholic, send him to an AA meeting, he'll be cured, you know. Where's smart recovery? Where's moderation management? Where's all the rest of those? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that that kind of knee-jerk reaction to go to AA is as much a problem of access to care as anything else. You know, AA is free. It's everywhere. And so when you don't have any other option, you know, that's kind of where you send people. I think, you know, as more resources become available, and hopefully with the Affordable Air Act, which is uh, going to assure parity in mental health and addiction treatment, there will be more professionally mediated services uh, for mm -hmm. people with varying types of substance use disorders, um, and just more options generally. So for the individual for whom AA is just not effective um, or just not a good fit, um, you know, hopefully there will be other options going forward. So, so you know, I, I know myself that, that I kind of rely on AA because that's what's available to a lot of my patients. Mm -hmm. And because I do know that for, for people who actively engage in it, it tends to work. Mm -hmm. it, you know, if they participate um, and kind of buy into the program. But if there were other options, I would probably consider other options for, for patients. But, you know, the other options, well, what do you think about the uh, online groups and online interaction because the other options are available online? Yeah, right. So I, it's interesting. I just was working, I'm working right now with some uh, Stanford University computer scientists who have gathered a whole bunch of data on MedHub's Forum 77, which is um, one of the online peer recovery groups or peer support groups for addiction. And it's fascinating because a lot of what people go online in that forum for is to find out how to, how to detox off opioids. 
So they want actual medical advice and cocktails, including medication cocktails, for um, getting off of opioids. And then after that kind of information is disseminated, and the reason they, they go there is because they probably can't ask their doctors because they're probably getting the prescription opioids that they're abusing from their doctors. Um, then it's really a minority of people that sort of sticks around to support each other through a more sustained recovery. So what's interesting about the online world is that it's incredibly varied. People are using it the way that they need to use it. And in some ways it's replicating, um, you know, 12-step types of peer recovery. But in other ways it's kind of inventing itself. I think that's absolutely true. Um, on our website for Ham's Harm Reduction for Alcohol, uh, we have a page about how to taper off alcohol. And it was the first such page that was ever put up online. Because I know, I went searching for it before I put it up there. It, it didn't exist. There was nothing there, even though I knew people personally that had used the taper method because they had no other resource. And, you know, that is our number one hit page of all our pages on our site. That is the one that gets the most hits. How interesting. What's your protocol? Um, well, generally, first we ask people, we tell people about what a standard drink is and how to measure their baseline. And, you know, for people that are drinking like a fifth of vodka a day or thereabout, we would say on the, on the first day try to go, that's about 17 standard drinks. So we'd say on the first day try to go to 10 and then from there on try to reduce two per day two standard drinks per day mm -hmm. until you're down mm -hmm. to zero. And that's generally safe for most people. We also tell people, you know, monitor your blood pressure, your heart rate. If, it's, if you're going too fast, then you need to slow down, maybe reduce one drink per day. And, you know, some people, they choose to go a little faster than that. But first you have to establish your baseline. And, uh, you know, for people at 10 drinks a day or less, we say you can reduce, uh, you can start by reducing two per day. And usually that's uh, pretty safe for most people. <coughs> Yeah, that's so interesting because um, it's amazing how people are just bypassing healthcare providers altogether to get this kind of information. On the Forum 77 MedHub, um, one of the most frequently um, discussed topics is something called the Thomas Detox Recipe. It's T-H-O-M-A-S, Detox Recipe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nobody really knows who Thomas is, but somehow or another he got this legendary opioid detox recipe circulating. and. Um, you know, it's, it tells how to use Valium and Imodium and L-tyrosine and vitamin B6 and have a lot of access to hot baths. And, you know, I admit that I use the Thomas recipe as my outpatient detox protocol. It was similar anyway to what I was doing, but when I read it, I thought, oh, you know, that's a good idea. You know, because really, who are the experts on detox? People who have detoxed. I've never detoxed off of opiates on my own. I don't know how to do that. You know, so... You know, addicts are sort of ahead of the healthcare field because of their experiential knowledge. And now, with the internet, this incredible um, cross dissemination of information. Yeah, I go to the Thomas recipe. You know, as and I'm a, I'm an MD, right? So that's mm -hmm. hilarious. And now that I know about your page, I'll be going to that too. I'll say, hey, go to this page, and you know, maybe we don't need to give you a Librium a Librium outpatient paper. You can just do this. Uh, according to <clears throat> this alcohol detox. So it's, it's an interesting time. Yeah, what happens is so many people do not want uh, alcohol dependence 
on their records, on their medical records, because yeah. you know that screws you up so badly all through the rest of your life. If you have any substance use disorder on your medical records, you just screwed for life on all kinds of things. Have you experienced that personally? Because I, I, I think you know, I find that really sad, and I would like that not to be true. Um, but I hear that from so many, so many people with addiction that I just figure it must be true. Um, I've heard it from many people as well who've had. Well, they, the main problem is getting health insurance, you know. But sometimes it also gets out to employers. I mean, you know, supposedly this is supposed to be privileged information, but it isn't really. You know, because employers provide insurance, you know, all this stuff is going all over the place. Myself, because by the time I got this stuff on my medical records, um, you know, ever, ever since then, I've been in the field. <laughs> so, you know, when I, got, when I uh, applied to work at Needle Exchange, you know, they were not uh, concerned about looking at my medical records because I already told them, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've, been addicted. I'm not addicted now. Um, you know, I've handed out needles before, all this stuff. So, you know, in certain types of employment, you know, some past experience is actually in your favor. But that's the, yeah. minor that's the minority, of course. Right. right. See, what I would love to see is an era in which addiction is so destigmatized that we can freely converse about patient substance use disorders between healthcare providers and within the medical record so that we can better serve them. And this is an instance in which I really do feel conceptualizing addiction as a disease is helpful because it allows us to then talk about it as a chronic relapsing and remitting condition that needs our attention and is on par with asthma or type 2 diabetes or obesity, other conditions that we as healthcare professionals pay attention to. In a way, I think the fact that we don't talk about it openly further stigmatizes it and marginalizes it and sort of keeps it in, the, you know, the dark ages. Um, so, again, that's where I kind of think that this disease concept could be helpful. See, I get just the opposite feeling, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, you know, Having a disease, if you're a leper, people don't go out of their way to seek out lepers. In fact, lepers are shunned, you know, and that's a disease. And, you know, I've seen um, people who believe addiction is a disease. And I've seen actually some studies that this leads actually people to shun those that they believe have an addictive disease because it's like they're out of control. It's like, you know. And schizophrenia is another one. You know, people don't go out of their way. Uh, oh, you're schizophrenic. You have a disease, so I love you. Uh, it's kind of, no, let's avoid him because he's crazy. He's got a mental illness, disease in his head. Um, but the other thing that really gets to me is um, our whole culture, our government, um, everything, we are about stigmatizing drug use. You know, and we don't, the government doesn't recognize really addiction and non-addiction and all that you know if you're using illegal drugs at least you know it's either put him in jail or put him in treatment it is not all right for him to use heroin he cannot say you know i like to use heroin you know leave me alone you know in portugal they decriminalized everything and i think we need to totally destigmatize that if somebody likes to use heroin or crack you know why 
are they a worse person than me who likes to use alcohol, for example? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we have this, first we have to get rid of the drug war and get rid of the drug laws. If somebody wants to use heroin, you know, let them do it. And if they will like to use heroin all the time, every single day, uh, to the point they're physically dependent, well, you know, that's their choice. And when they decide, I don't like to do that anymore, and I don't want to do that anymore, that's when, you know, people are ready to change, and that's when we should help them to change. But I don't think we should judge people based on their drug use, period. So drug use should, needs to be legalized and destigmatized. Mm-hmm. I do agree that probably legalizing drug use would help destigmatize it. Certainly that's, um, that's evident when you look at cigarettes. Right, so cigarettes are legal, and there's been a huge public health campaign to stigmatize cigarettes, which has led to cigarettes reduction. Whereas marijuana, which is technically not legal, is ironically less stigmatized than cigarettes, and a lot more people are smoking marijuana. So my point being that in a way, when you legalize substances, you potentially create an opportunity for the society to stigmatize it to reduce use, which is a little bit different from what you're saying, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you just, you really believe that any substance use should be completely taken out of the medical realm at all. It should be seen as purely like a personal choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I guess what would you say to um, substance use that leads to not just self-destruction but other destruction? Do you think that's something then that that society should step in, in, in and regulate, like, let's say, you know, motor vehicle accidents due to substance use or other more um, heinous crimes due to substance use. You know what I mean? I mean, at what point is it an individual's problem and at what point does it really become a societal problem? I don't have the answer to that, but I'm just kind of wondering. <laughs> well, you know, my, what you're... I'm happy to give you my point of view. If you run somebody over with your car because you are intoxicated or because you're yakking on your cell phone, not paying attention, or whatever reason, uh, you need to be legally responsible for hitting that person with your car. You, I mean, these are, there's no excuse. You know, if you are going to use a substance, then you had better think ahead of time and plan how you're going to use it so you're going to be safe. Um, you know, one, one of the things I noticed, I lived in Japan for six years, and, you know, later on, you know, not so long ago, I just, just looked up the statistics. Um, there are 20 times fewer uh, alcohol-related uh, automobile fatalities in Japan than the U.S. So, and it's because, um, it's, first, it's totally unacceptable to drive when you're drunk there. Everybody, when you're drunk, you get on the train. You, you take the public transportation. You see people passed out drunk on the train all the time. Driving drunk, totally socially unacceptable. Second of all, of course, there's public transportation everywhere. So people... They plan to get drunk, they go there on the train, they come home on the train, they're drunk, maybe they walk out of the station and decide to lay down in the park and go to sleep instead of making it home to their apartment. But, you know, alcohol-related automobile fatalities are very rare there. Okay. And, and, and your point is that they just have a culture around not driving when you're drunk? Um, they have a culture around not driving when you're drunk. Um, people don't drive very much to begin with. Uh, two-thirds of the people commute to work by public transportation. It's a norm. And people, you know, when they're going to get drunk, they... So get, driving drunk is very stigmatized. Um, penalties are very high. It's totally socially disapproved of. 
But getting drunk in itself is not a problem. It's not a problem. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this, just because, I, again, I do see um, a subset of severely alcohol-addicted patients who, um, who I feel like have really lost the ability to choose on some level. Um, and, of course, this is the central argument of National Institute of Drug Abuse, Nora Volkow, and others who say that um, the reward system has been hijacked by the substance of abuse, and that's why it's a disease. But, but I feel like uh, that does actually apply to a subset of uh, individuals that I treat, that on some level um, they can absolutely see that this is destroying them. They want to stop, and yet they're unable to. So I'm wondering, what do you what, what do you make of that? Um, you know, first, I don't believe that anyone is unable in an absolute sense to do so. I think what we see are levels of difficulty. You know, it's just like we see levels of severity of addiction in the in the DSM five that we were just talking about. You know, the generally speaking, the more severely you're addicted the harder it is to quit although it's it's there's even there's even some studies that contradict that so um well, how about if we, if we put a time frame on it like do you think that it is true that for some people um with when they're in the throes of intoxication and withdrawal that they actually have lost the ability <clears throat> to choose or to control impulses around Substances, assuming substances are available, do you believe that that might be true? Uh, lost the ability to choose. Um, I don't think that they've lost the ability to choose. It's a matter of how difficult the choice has become. Um, I was going to say one more thing before we go on to, uh, on past this, and that was when Prochaska uh, was studying cigarette smokers. Um, he found that the people who were the least likely to quit were the ones in the middle. The light smokers found it easy to quit. The heavy smokers were more likely to quit. Even though they had a more difficult time quitting, they seemed they had more consequences in front of them. So it was the people who were the moderate smokers who were the least likely to quit. So I don't know that it always works that way, you know, because I was a very heavy smoker, and I quit, and it was horrible. It was hell. But, you know, I did it because I decided, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter how hard it is. I'm going to do it anyway. So I quit. And um, well, I quit cigarettes completely. Um, my goal was I was going to have a cigar no more than once a week, although this past year I've only had one all year, so I'm really disappointed that I haven't smoked more. <laughs> do you get credit like is it like a bank account where you kind of get to save up then and no huh uh no because if i smoke more than one cigar a week i notice i have tolerance um because i did try that you know a couple yeah. times and it, yeah. I, it's not as much fun it's do you drink fun. do you drink alcohol now uh, yes. Um, my plan, which really worked for me, was to decide to abstain six days a week. And then one day a week, you know, when I didn't have to work the next day, I would uh, drink a fifth of whiskey, you know, 17 standard drinks at home safely. Don't leave the house. Watch my movies. I've never had a problem for many, many years of, uh, you know, 
I would like to call it alcohol abuse because I didn't do stupid, dangerous things when I was drinking. I would stay at home, you know, or if I was drinking when I was out, I would leave early enough, you know, so I was not intoxicated when I left. I would only be intoxicated at home where I wasn't going to kill anybody or myself or, you know. So that that's your current regimen. You don't drink for six days, and then on the seventh day, the mm-hmm. day of rest, you have 17 drinks. Yes. Okay, that's really interesting. So, you know, in 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 the medical field, that would be considered like a binge pattern. But you're absolutely right. If there's there are no consequences that we could identify, and it's, you don't feel that it's compulsive and it's not out of control, although someone argues 17 drinks is out of control, right? Like, I mean, why not just have two? Why does it have to be 17? Well, about once a month or so, I have a friend that has a birthday party or some social occasion where I will, okay, I'll have one because I'm in public, drinking in public, I'm not at home, and I'm not drinking to get intoxicated, but I'm drinking to be, join the crowd. I didn't do this for the first five years of my plan, but for the past five years of my plan, yeah, I've said, okay, you can have one in a social situation to be sociable, even two, I don't usually go to two, usually stop at one, but that's a whole other mindset because I'm not drinking for the effect, I'm drinking to be a normal human being like everybody else in the social situation. Okay, so this is really, really interesting. So now, can I ask you more about this? Do you mind? Oh, ask me anything. <laughs> All right. So uh, when you get to your drinking day and you have your 17 drinks, like, um, how, how do you keep it at just 17, and what is the thing that you are going for? What is the desired effect? Okay, I don't keep alcohol in my house. So the day I'm going to drink, I go to the store, I buy a fifth, which is 17 drinks. Uh, of course, when it's gone, I'm ready to go to sleep, and then it's gone. You know, um, I used to have a problem, you know, well, I, pro- I might still have a problem. If I had liquor in the house and I woke up feeling kind of woozy and boozy, I might want to drink some more if it was that convenient right at hand. But, you know, if I actually have to put my shoes on and go out of the house and walk to the store, by the time I'm out the door, it's like, uh, no, I- I'm done with this plan. I'm not interested in it anymore, so... Not having it around is, uh, is the thing that will stop me. So I buy what I'm going to drink, drink it, it's gone, go to sleep, get up the next day, done for the week. What is the effect? Um, well, I want to alter my consciousness. In what way? I want to you know, be able to either lose myself in music. I used to do music a lot more lately. It's movies. Um, and you know, it's much easier to totally lose myself in in movies, you know, under this, uh, under the influence. So the kind of forgetting the self, the merging with the oneness of the universe, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a nice feeling. And hard to achieve, but you achieve it with the 17 drinks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to do the standard motivational interviewing technique, but not because I'm trying to change you, <laughs> but more because I'm genuinely curious. Any downsides to your current regimen? Um, well, obviously, the next day, the following day, I'm not. I don't get much done. So, but you know, I also feel like it's a, it, there's a need for me to blow off some steam at least mm-hmm. once a week. Mm-hmm. You know, so on the whole, it seems the best balance between, you know, what I used to do was drink like four times this much. And, you know, go to work hungover and do stupid shit like that. That's not really a good idea. 
and you know total abstinence, which I'm not really happy with either. I've done a number of periods of uh, total abstinence uh, up to several months at a time. Um, every now and then, it's a it's a nice it's nice sometimes to do an abstinence period, but uh, you know it's not something I want to commit to for a lifetime for sure. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, interesting. Um, it's it's nice to get you know different perspectives. If you you know if you were my patient, right, um, I would be worried about like liver toxicity because at seventeen drinks um, four times a month that puts you in binge category, which is associated with liver damage, even if you're not drinking in between. Um, yeah, but you know, if you look at the studies, um, which I went through all of these when I was writing my book, um, the worst thing is, well, there's a threshold effect that takes place at eight standard drinks and above, and going over eight standard drinks doesn't really increase your danger any. What they found was the people that drank daily had to twice the risk of the people who drank less less than daily, who drank every other day or less. So, you know, although I'm definitely at an increased risk of liver damage, it's not as much as if I was drinking eight drinks daily, seven days a week. Right, and in the spirit of harm reduction, you're drinking a lot less than you used to drink. Yeah, about a quarter of what I used to drink. Yeah. Anybody in your life, give you a hard time for spending uh, Sundays intoxicated? No. So nobody's, nobody's kind of breathing down your neck and saying you shouldn't do that? Nope. Okay. Well, good. It's, it's always good to learn about how people kind of uh, find different ways to solve these problems. Lord knows I don't have the answers, so... Um. <laughs> Well, our whole program is to encourage any positive change. And I thought I had not sent you a copy of our book, so I will definitely send you one out so that yeah, you can take do. a look at it. Um, but, uh, yeah, we encourage any positive change. So we have the only alcohol support group that you can come to and say, you know, I decided to stop drinking and driving, but I still want to get drunk every day. And we'll say, that's a good idea. <laughs> Really? You really say that? Oh, absolutely. Um, Which part is a good idea? They're not drinking and driving? That's a good idea, obviously. Well, if you're going to get drunk every day anyway, uh, you know, deciding to stop stop driving afterwards is is an excellent idea. You know, we're assuming the, the person is holding their alcohol consumption constant, but, you know, they decided, I want to be safer, so I'm not going to drink and drive anymore. And what percentage of your folks are like that? People people who basically want to be sort of mildly intoxicated every day. Actually, relatively few people have come to us seeking only to be safer. But Mm. uh, everyone really likes the concept that they're not going to be coerced to change in any way. They don't want to. And they realize, you know, if that was their choice, I just want to be safer and drink the same amount that we would accept them totally. You know, it's totally reassuring to them. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. Most people want to make some reduction, Mm -hmm. but they might not want to make a reduction to, uh, say, the moderation management, uh, moderate drinking limits, or the NIAAA drinking, moderate drinking limits. You know, they might Mm -hmm. say, um, well, I don't want to drink every day of the week anymore. I want to take one day off. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Or they might say they might want my plan, drink a fifth of whiskey one day a week. Or they mm-hmm. might, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're all different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can even be a person, well, I have one glass of wine every day and I don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to quit completely. And we say, mm-hmm. that's great. Because whatever you want to do, that's what we want to support. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So it's really this total respect for individual autonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's an absolute harm reduction approach, which uh, you know I learned from doing needle exchange. You know, um, you know when you're in moderation management, and I used to be their online director for a while, so I know quite a bit because I used to work for them. Oh yeah. And you know, it's like if you're not going to drink within the moderate drinking limits, uh, you need to go to an abstinence based program. Yeah. And there's not really that room for somebody that says, well, you know. I've been drinking, you know, a quarter whiskey four days a week, and now I want right. to go to two days a week. Yeah. And, and they just really don't have a home there. But you know, when yeah, when it you're when you're doing needle exchange, you don't say to people, "Well, if you're a moderate heroin user, we'll give you clean needles." But right. if you if you can't moderate, you can't have clean needles. You need to stop. Right. I mean, people would say that's insane. Yeah. And, you know. Yes, it's an interesting analogy, which I had never considered, but I will, uh, I will give some thought to that. I, I wonder, though, if in a way, um, <clears throat> if in a way we're sort of, it's sort of writing off a certain subset of the substance-using population, sort of like people who, a needle exchange, like they're just, we're just basically trying to keep those people alive as opposed to maybe a higher functioning person with more social capital, that would not be acceptable. You know, we would then encourage that person to pursue abstinence. Do you follow my line of thinking there? Like, I'm wondering if we change our approach based on, like, socioeconomic status? You know, I think, and I don't have data to back this up, but my personal belief is that if you encourage people to make small positive changes that they choose for themselves, that they are more likely down the road to choose to continue to make more changes and bigger changes than if you say, well, what you did isn't good enough. Your change gotcha. is not. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, so, so your advice for a healthcare provider like me, and again, I've been doing this for a long time, so it's not like I'm, I'm totally wet behind the ears, but it sounds like what I'm possibly learning from you today, I feel like I'm learning from you today, is that I can be more liberal in my conceptualization of harm reduction. And anything that's harm reduction is good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And once again, since you are a health care provider, you have an MD, um, you do have this sort of an authority relationship. So we do have a lot of evidence for the brief intervention. So, I mean, it is reasonable to say, well, you know, the medical standards on drinking are this and this and this. And, you know, right. if somebody's not heard that before, um, it can do them a good service to hear right. that. Mm-hmm. But if the answer is, well, I don't want to drink only three drinks a day, but, you know, I'd like to cut down and just drink once a week and get drunk once a week, you know, cutting down is good. So it's worth encouraging. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, good. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's interesting because, if, again, if I had a patient who was doing what you're doing, I would generally consider that to be a suboptimal um, goal for us. 
you know, mm-hmm. as a patient provider dyad. But as someone immersed in the field, you're telling me that that this has not only made sense for you, but you've worked with other people for whom this has made sense also. That in a way, your spiritual path, so to speak, is getting drunk on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually Friday nowadays, but uh, okay, Friday. <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow will be the day. Yes, because gotcha. okay. um, well, I used to work weekends, and then it was Sunday was because Monday was my weekend. Right. So then Sunday was my drinking day, but now right. uh, I've been for the past year, you know, a regular job. So it's, I actually had to switch my days around. Okay. And which I mean, it wasn't it wasn't too difficult to switch my days around. The hardest thing was to switch my speech patterns around because I was so damn used to telling everybody Sunday is my day. Sunday is my day. Okay, 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 yeah. And yeah. I would you know all of a sudden say Sunday is my day. Oops, no, I mean Friday is my day because gotcha, gotcha. That schedule. Yeah, anymore. yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think one of the fascinating um, revelations I've had about substance use abuse, whatever language you want to use, is how much it is related to um, how we organize ourselves in time. You know, the way that we either bookend a day or bookend a week around that thing that will allow us some pleasure and some escape. And that's true for most all of us, even if we're not substance users or have the vulnerability toward addiction. You know, I certainly look forward to um, my day in the week when I can settle into bed with the newspaper or a novel. So I, I think it is fascinating how, how that seems to be kind of a fundamental human need, that ability to sort of have that time to look forward to when we can lose ourselves. And, you know, we find so many different ways to do that, but the drive for that seems to be fairly universal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, to me, it's all about when it starts becoming problematic. Um, now, this is an interesting one because there are two things, two addictions that I have decided to abstain from completely. And the one I mentioned was cigarettes, you know, and not nicotine because, you know, there's, there's a way for me to enjoy nicotine with a cigar now and then. But cigarettes are just totally addictive for me. They're not associated with relaxation and pleasure and kicking back. But, you know, it's like puffing away and working and being, you know, all intense. It's not. So cigarettes totally, uh, total absence is my best shot. And the other one of course, that everybody li- listens to this show knows about is television. Mm-hmm. Uh, television was far more addictive for me than alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, because it totally robbed my time. You know, I would not, mm-hmm. I would get sucked into the television mm-hmm. and uh, not be able to do my homework for school. Mm-hmm. And I, the worst part was I hated what I was watching because I thought it was total crap. But mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't get up to turn the thing off. And, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't turn itself off. Interesting. So you've really been mindful about the ways in which these various quote-unquote addictive behaviors are worth, are worth it because of the way that you attach to them and whether or not you get more benefit than risk. And on some level, alcohol is worth it because you get what you need from it and there aren't too many downsides. 
at least not so far. Mm-hmm. Well, there used to be big downsides, which is why I made big changes. Yeah. I used to be a big drunkard. But uh, these days in particular, boy, if I try to drink more than one day a week, which I have tried on occasion, but I'm just too tired out. You know, it's not even fun the second day. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You're able to... Use immoderately, but to control your immoderate use, and mm-hmm. and that's walking a very fine line. And I, I wonder how many people could do that, you know, the way you've been able to do it. Well, um, it's interesting because um, I was looking at Bill Miller's outcome studies on his uh, behavioral self control uh, thing that he was uh, he studied, and there was there was some of the data he didn't discuss a lot. But what we found was there were a large number of people in the study who reduced the harm of their drinking. They reduced their quantities. They reduced the negative consequences without becoming moderate drinkers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the number that stayed the same or, or progressed was like a quarter. And mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, another more than a quarter, close to a third, I think, something like that. Anyway, that's a big chunk that... Uh, they drank less. They didn't become moderate. They didn't hit moderate limits. They didn't right. uh, reduce all harms, but they reduced they reduced numerous consequences. So right. harm reduction is actually a very common outcome. Right. But it doesn't usually get counted in most studies. Well, and also, you know, what's so hard about this is is how it's counted. So the way that the user might count it versus the people who inter- interact with that person, I think that's really tricky. Um, you know, it sounds like there's nobody in your life who thinks that your current system is problematic, but <clears throat> how would we define success if, for example, you thought things were great, but somebody who was close to you didn't? Um, so would that mean I had the problem, or would it mean they had the problem? Exactly. Exactly. M- might it not be possible that they had a problem by being too judgmental? Could be. Could be. Or it could be that there really are consequences because they have a problem. So if you want to be in relationship with that person and you're engaging in a behavior that's problematic for them and you're not willing to change it, then maybe it's also problematic for you, that behavior. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, in my family of birth that I was raised in, um, they were evangelical Christians and one drink of uh, alcohol meant you were going straight to hell. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so <laughs> uh, you know, um, they were also uh, Wallace voters. So, you know, um, so eventually, um, you know, I became, and they were also creationists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, of course, I became a hard-drinking communist Darwinist. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, I think it really does, you know, speak to how complex the construct is, um, how it's, you know, obviously the disease construct, although I'm a proponent in some settings, doesn't begin to describe the complexity around these kinds of, of issues, the biopsychosocial complexity, the ecological complexity, 
you know, you grew up in a family where people were addicted to religion. Mm-hmm, and uh, so, and that works for a lot of people, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Especially if they're vulnerable to addiction and they don't want to use substances. It's the spiritual solution um, in spades. But, um, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, uh, you know, another thing that really complicates it, and, you know, my personal observation is it seems like every society needs to have the scapegoat, the uh, person that they hate, they're prejudiced against. Um, and you know, it, it's interesting how it changes through time. Um, it, back in 1950 and earlier, a century ago, you know, homosexuals were monsters. They were perverts who preyed on young boys. You know, the, the whole conceptualization in the United States um, and in England, too, because Oscar Wilde wound up in prison for being homosexual. You know, they were monsters. It was outlawed. It was, or, and then later it, we became enlightened and homosexuality became a disease. And you remember, the, of course, it was taken out of the DSM in the mid-70s. And now it's just, uh, well, that's the way you are and nobody mm-hmm. cares. Mm-hmm. You know, we go back again to uh, about the turn of the century, uh, about 1900, um, or the 1890s, and most of the people, I mean, most of the people addicted to opiates were addicted to patent medicines, and the majority were female, and it was like your grandma that made you cookies after church was the typical opiate addict, but we didn't think of them as monsters then. We thought, uh, you know, the homosexuals were monsters. Uh, Granny's just got a little problem with, uh, you know, taking a little bit too much of the laudanum. But, you know, people were not stigmatized for it. But now Mm -hmm. it's totally switched around, starting with the Harrison Opiate Act, uh, Harrison Narcotics Act. Um, Now drug users are monsters. And, uh, you know, gay people are just... uh, to be accepted, you know, if you're a homo, if you're homophobic now, you're just going to have everybody come down your ass. Well, it's interesting. I, I think I would probably read the history a little bit differently in that it seems to me that um, people with immoderate substance use have been stigmatized for centuries. I mean, prior to 1800, people thought that it was devil possession. Um, and on from there, I think that the current conceptualization of addiction as a disease has helped destigmatize it. Now, I know you don't like the conception of the disease paradigm, but we, there is some anthropologic evidence that shows that once um, people think that something is a brain disease and that there's some kind of um, medical remedy for it, all of a sudden it's less stigmatized. And I think that is true for addiction. I would say people with addiction are are less stigmatized now than they were 100 or 200 years ago. Um, and I think that's primarily due to this kind of biologi- biological um, reorientation on, on substance use disorders. Mm, I don't get that sense at all. Mm-hmm. No. And, I mean, there's a lot of history on this. 
Well, you know, it's interesting and it's complex, and there's all kinds of things going on. And the one that was just going through my mind was uh, opium in China, which, you know, as long as people ate opium in China, um, we didn't, we don't see any talk about an addiction problem in Chinese history. And, you know, it was only with the, with the introduction of smoking tobacco that people got the idea to smoke opium. And I'm sure you're familiar with the doctor, as a doctor, that the route of ingestion and rate of ingestion, the quicker it gets into your brain, the quicker the concentration rises, the more addictive it is. Mm-hmm. And when people started smoking opium instead of eating it, uh, we suddenly, China had a huge opium addiction problem. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that, that the Chinese today think that opium is a terrible scourge. You know, I mean, the, you know, the, the, since the opium wars and beyond. I'm actually going to China next summer to get some oral histories on, um, on folks with addiction in China. Um, so I'll be able to say more firsthand about uh, how people view addiction in China when I come back from that trip. But... Um, the cross-cultural differences are interesting. For example, you know, the Chinese are very up in arms about Internet addiction um, and, and more concerned by far about that than about their very high rates of cigarette smoking. So those are all, those are all fascinating you know, cultural and social construct questions. You know, it's the, I, I think it's their big fear of the Internet period that makes them more concerned about the quote-unquote Internet, Internet addiction. And they appear to have an incredibly biologized view of addiction. Um, they're the first ones to say that, you know, kids who are on the Internet all day have a disease, which is, you know, interesting in and of itself, how they sort of wholesale, lock, stock, and barrel adopted the disease paradigm. Well, I was reading recently about uh, Deng Xiaoping, who attributed his longevity to his cigarette smoking and would encourage everyone to start smoking cigarettes because it would make them live longer. Sure, it's like <laughs> Churchill. It's like Churchill. He drank himself silly every day, and that's why he had such a fruitful life <laughs> um, but you know I, I'm going to come back to one more thing and then we're going to have to close and you know because you were talking about the person who is severely addicted to alcohol and you were saying you know are they at a point where they can't quit but I, the question I have is, is there anything in the treatment world that is going to help this person that's not available to themselves uh, for deciding for themselves. Okay, well, I guess I would amend what I said to say that they can't quit without help. And in my opinion, help may simply be um, helping them safely detox and then keeping them in a restricted environment for some amount of time so that they don't have access to their drug of choice so that they can kind of um, re-equilibrate their brain for a period of time so they get some clarity so then they can make some choices. I guess I do feel strongly that there are some people who at a certain level of addiction need that kind of help to get out of that hole. Just like there are people with a certain amount of depression that if you don't get in there and either assist them medically or with ECT, you know, they'll, they'll kill themselves so they'll just stop eating or whatever it is. So um, I do think that that there is a subset of people who, who are like that and need help to get well again. Once they're out of that hole, then they can choose. 
you know, they can choose to um, change their behavior or not. But I do think there is that, that window of time in which maybe people really have lost that ability. Well, safe detoxification from alcohol and benzos is uh, is a very important issue that can't be overlooked because these two can kill you. I mean, opiate addiction usually doesn't kill anybody. It's usually just unpleasant. But these two in particular, yeah, safe de- detoxification is essential, whether it's a self-detox with alcohol or if somebody has access to Valium or Librium and does a self-detox that way. That's very important. One thing, uh, are you familiar with the uh, wet housing in Seattle? No. Oh, it's very interesting. They took um, the uh, the alcoholics living on the street in Seattle, and uh, you know gave them wet housing where you know they could drink all they want, and you know consequences, and because they wanted to save the government a lot of money because these guys were always going to the emergency room and checking into detox, you know, because they needed a place to sleep, and they said this is much cheaper to just give them places where they can sleep and drink. And, you know, once they got housed, after a couple months, they found that they cut their drinking by a third. Hmm, interesting. And the, the research is still going on. It's been a couple of years now. And I think they, they continue to reduce their drinking more and more. You know, so I don't think anybody's hopeless or out of control. Oftentimes, though, they do need, you know, people have so few resources. You know, the only way, if you're living on the street, you buy your bottle. You have to drink it down really quickly so nobody steals it from you in the first place. You're also getting drunk just so you can get to sleep because you have to sleep on the street, which is horrible. You know, oftentimes just giving people some resources allows them to start making changes. Right. I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think it's underappreciated how much, again, environment matters, or you call it giving people resources. I absolutely agree with that. You know, you know, uh, alternative rewards are essential. Um, things like where you live, having a stable living environment makes a huge difference. Having a job, having something that gives you meaning in life, something to work toward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, and as we found with the Vietnam veterans that came back, once they were out of Vietnam, most of them didn't need to use heroin anymore. Right, exactly. Exactly. Well, we're coming to the close of the show, so I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest this evening. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, and I I learned something tonight, so I appreciate it. Thanks for your openness. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.